Well, welcome to Front Range. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm the lead pastor, and we're so grateful that you are here with us, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online. Um, and uh, I'm losing my voice. Uh, I coach my daughter's uh, third grade girls basketball team, and we had our first game yesterday, and I just yelled at third grade girls like the whole time. Uh, so I'm completely losing uh, my voice. So hopefully we'll make it through this together. Uh, our hope and prayer, if this is your first time, that, uh, man, this will be a place that you call home, a place where you can build community, discover purpose, and grow in your faith in Jesus. Uh, we, uh, one of the ways that we try to help you do that is we, uh, we have something called Next Steps with Front Range. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to come and find out more about our church and maybe how you can get involved and some of the next steps that you can take. We have that actually tonight. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you can go to our events page on our website or on our app, and you can register there. Uh, we'll have food for you. Uh, we'll have child care, all of that. So we'd love for you to join us uh, as we just figure out, man, what are the next steps we can take as a church to connect with you and for you to connect with us? Also, I want to let you know about uh, Love in Action. Uh, Pastor Johnny just talked about it, but uh, this is a, a six-week campaign. We said, let's try to raise $120,000, uh, which is a lot of money. Uh, but the reality is, uh, with where we live, with uh, just individuals, uh, we know that some of us, we could give $120,000 ourselves. Others of us, it'll be a struggle to give $120. Uh, so we've said it's not about equal giving, it's about equal sacrifice. And if we sacrifice together, then we'll be able to reach this goal every dollar that we give is going out, is going to people that are in need, is going to missionaries, to local organizations, church plants like Pastor Johnny just talked about. Uh, and I love how our entire church is involved in this, uh, from the kids all the way up. In fact, our custom student ministry, uh, what they're doing, they're trying to raise money together. Uh, and depending on how much money they raise, they'll be able to uh, sponsor one, two, maybe three kids with one of our partner organizations called Bread of Life. To sponsor a child is to provide food, education, medical help all of that. Uh, so together, uh, as our custom student ministry, they're trying to raise enough money to be able to sponsor a child. And I just love that. I love the generosity of our church. Uh, so if you want any more information, you can uh, take a look at this, this booklet or online, the link, or you can go on our website. You can find it there. You can figure out how to give and all that good stuff. Uh, speaking of custom, uh, our student ministry, they have what's called Friendsgiving this week. So if you have a middle school or high school students, do not let them miss this event. It'll be an opportunity where they can uh, come find out more information uh, about custom and be able to build relationship with other students and honestly just have fun. They'll have great food. It's dressing up. It's, it's a lot of cool stuff. So do not miss that if you're in middle school or high school because uh, it's going to be a good event. Uh, today, we are going to continue the series called Relational Vampires. What do vampires do? They suck your blood. They suck the life out of you. What do relational vampires do? They're people in your life that suck the life out of you. Now, all of us have those people in our lives. The first week, we looked at controlling people. Uh, last week, we looked at needy people. Next week, perfectly in time for Thanksgiving, we're looking at critical people because you might be going to Thanksgiving meals with some critical family members of yours. Uh, so we're going to look at that next week, so don't miss that. Today, we're looking at a, a group of people that, honestly, for me, is the hardest group of people to interact with and to uh, uh, respond to and, and to give grace to and all of that, and that's hypocritical people. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you would say, there's somebody in my life, or I know somebody that's a hypocrite? Anybody? Okay, yeah. So this is a, a, a tough subject, just be real honest. This is not a sexy subject. This isn't like, oh, I can't wait to preach about hypocritical people. Um, uh, this is a tough one. Because I know there's some people in this room 
that you never thought you'd step foot in a church again because some hypocritical people in your life. There's also other people in this room that we call everybody a hypocrite. No matter what they're doing, no matter what their belief system is, we just, well, you're a hypocrite. Well, you're a hypocrite. And so this isn't a sexy topic, but it's one that we have to address because not only do we have hypocritical people in our lives, but if we're not careful, we can become those hypocritical, hypocritical people in other people's lives. Where the term hypocrite come from, it's a, it's a Greek word uh, used in Greek theater. Um, and it literally means somebody who wears a mask, then on the outside they look a certain way, but on the inside, so like this one, I'm really sad. No, I'm not, I'm not sad. Uh, but the creepy masks tells you that I'm sad. Or this one, I'm really happy. Maybe I'm not, I'm depressed or whatever. But it, the actual term means somebody they're portraying something outwardly that they're not inwardly. So whatever they're wrestling through inwardly, inwardly, they're not showing that necessarily outwardly. Now, we all, we all get these people. In fact, Jesus had these people in his life. And, and the, the majority of the anger that Jesus displayed here on earth was directed at hypocritical people. In fact, you read Matthew chapter 23, and he says seven different times, woe to you. He says, woe to you religious leaders, woe to you teachers of the law. Primarily, he's talking about religious people who should know better, who say, man, I, I love God, I follow God, but they don't look like they love God, and they definitely don't follow God with their actions. He says, woe to you. Then he calls them hypocrites. Then he ends this section with, with uh, Matthew 23, verse 28. He says, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness wickedness. That's hypocrisy. Hypocritical people are filled with wickedness. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And he gets mad at these. We, under, we know these people, right? It's the, it's the friend of ours that, uh, man, they can have a normal conversation with you. They can, they can cut up and cut jokes and, and talk about sports, maybe even talk about their faith, maybe even come to community group. And all the while they're cheating on their spouse. It's the business owner that talks about their faith and talks about all the good things they want to do for God and, and how much they love God and all of that, but they're stealing from the business or they're treating their customers or their coworkers or their employees like junk. It's the student who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. I come to custom. Maybe I even raise my hands in worship and on the weekends they're partying and not living for Christ. We all have these hypocrites in our lives. We all have these people in our lives that, that say they want God, that they worship God, and yet they act and think differently. And so what do we do? I mean, what's our response to hypocritical people? Is it to engage them? Is it to, to get up in their business and to confront them and talk about their issues and all that? Or is it to stand back and go, man, that's not me. That's not my place. That's somebody else. That's the pastor's place to do that or, or whatever. Like, I'll pray for them. You know, or, or God, if you give me like a clear sign, like you got to open the heavens and tell me, then I'll confront them. Or like, what's our role with hypocritical people? Well, before we can answer that question, before we can answer how do we love and respond hypocritical people, we have to ask the question, why are they acting that way? And here's what we're talking about. We're not talking about followers of Christ who sometimes sin. Okay, we're not talking about followers of Christ who go, man, I struggle. Like every person in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, or those of you watching online, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to sin. Plain and simple. We're human beings. The Bible says nobody is perfect. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all going to sin for sure. The hypocrite is someone who says, I know I'm sinning and I'm going to keep doing it. 
I love God, I love Jesus, but you know what? I'm just gonna keep doing this thing in my life, even though I know that it's opposed to God's will for my life. And so for that person, we have to ask the question, why are they acting the way they are? Let me give you kind of three, way, three reasons maybe why they're acting like a hypocrite. Number one, maybe they don't really know God. Maybe they don't really know God. Did you know that you can go to church and not really know God? Did you know you can say you believe in God and not really know God? In fact, in, in the New Testament, Jesus says multiple times that people would say, Lord, Lord, but they never knew him. They could say that they're followers of Christ, but they're actually not followers of Christ. I remember when I was in ninth grade, I've told this story before. I was in ninth grade and a girlfriend's mom said, hey, Ernest, are you a Christian? I said, yes, ma'am. I've lived in the South my whole life. I, I, I thought Christian was synonymous with Southerner. I had no clue it meant anything about this guy named Jesus or church. I didn't go to church. I had never heard the name Jesus up until that point. I just thought it meant I was a Southerner. I'm like, of course I'm a Southerner. Also, I'm going to tell you whatever you want to hear right now. You know, and so, that, so maybe they don't actually know God. Maybe that's why they're acting the way they are. Another reason why people maybe are acting like hypocrites or acting the way that they are is maybe they don't know better. Maybe they don't know better yet. I mean, this was me. I, there, there's a book in the New Testament. It's called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written to the church in Corinth. And this guy named Paul who writes the letter, writes to him. He says, you're like babies still. Like, it doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Christ. Like, if you're, if you're not getting into the word, if you're not understanding the word, and, and you don't, aren't a part of a community group and all that, then you're going to be like a baby. He says, you're like babies still. Like, I can't even give you the real meat yet because you're still only after milk. He, treat, he tells them you're like a child. Well, this is maybe, maybe some of the people in your life. This was me when I first accepted Christ. I, I didn't know anything about the Bible. And man, I was trying to live for God, but I didn't know like why God said do these things or don't do these things. And so I remember I was in a community group. It was a bunch of us high school guys. And the guy leading it was like maybe three or four years older than us, but he knew a whole lot more. And I remember sitting there and, and after group, I would ask him questions like, hey man, why can't I do this? Hey, why is this a sin? Hey, why does God say this is bad? I had no clue. And so he would just, I mean, very graciously answer my questions and help me understand like, hey, this is why this isn't God's plan for your life. Hey, this is why God says to do it this way. What I did, I didn't need correction at that time. I needed instruction. I didn't need somebody telling me that, hey, you're wrong and you're bad and all of these things. I didn't know. And so I needed somebody to come along and give me some instruction and help me. Oh, okay, that's what God's word says. Now I'm not, I don't want to do those things. Okay, so maybe they just, they don't know better yet. Lastly, and this is the group that we're going to be talking about today, maybe they know better, but they still disobey God. So maybe it's a person in your life that, that knows Christ, that, that has given their life to Jesus, and they know better on what they're doing, but they're like, I'm just still going to do it. It just still feels good. It seems right. It's whatever it may be. And so this is the group of people that we want to talk about because this is the group of people that not only do we have in our lives, but that we are most tempted to be in our lives. I mean, it's the person that doesn't understand 1 Peter chapter 2 that says, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Or in Romans, it says, hey, should I keep on sinning so that grace might increase in my life? Meaning that God's going to forgive me. So if he's going to forgive me, I might as well just do this thing anyways. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not how God created you. That's not God's best for your life. That's not what he wants for you and I. And so this person, it's the person that says, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. 
I know this isn't God's best, but I'm going to do it anyways. How do we help them? How do we confront them? But how do we make sure that we don't become those individuals as well? It's the guy that, or girl, that knows that porn is not the best way and yet feels so trapped in it and won't try to get help, won't try to move past it, just goes, I know it's not right for me, I know it's not good, and I'm not even going to try to get better in this area. It's the person that is gossiping and says, well, everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows. So if everybody knows, and it's not that big of a deal if I'm telling their business because everybody already knows their business, and yet it's still gossip. It's the person that's constantly living in anger. The person that says, well, I'm justified in my anger. I mean, if so-and-so wasn't president for the last four years, or if so-and-so wasn't president right now, or if this wasn't happening, or if this wasn't happening, then these things wouldn't be happening, and I wouldn't be angry. And we feel justified in our anger. We know that that's not what God's, God's best plan for our lives, and yet we keep doing it anyways. So how do you love and respond to a hypocritical person? Is it our place? Do we get all up in their business and, and tell them, hey, what you're doing is wrong? Or do we just kind of sit back? Well, let me tell you this. How you choose to respond impacts everything. How you choose to respond to a person that, that is living a certain way, knowing that it's not God's best. How you choose to respond to that not only impacts them, it impacts you, it impacts your relationship, and it impacts others. This past week, I was at a conference, and we were heading back to the airport, and we, we got an Uber driver to take us, and it was kind of a long drive, so we were just sitting there talking with him, and, and come to find out, he said, man, I, I felt like I was supposed to be a pastor at one point. I said, oh, man, so what happened? Why aren't you a pastor now? And he said, well, I felt, yeah, I felt like it was weird. I didn't want to ask people for, for their money. I was like, okay, well, I mean, it's not really that way, but I get it. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a therapist. I said, you know you need to ask people for money, Right? <laughs> And he kind of laughed because, ah, yeah, I know. But, and he began to explain the reason that he was hesitant to go into ministries because he saw pastors who were hypocritical, especially with money. That he felt like pastors, that there were pastors in, in his life or pastors that he saw on this, on this big scale that, that they were only after souls because they were actually after their wallets. That they only cared about people because they cared about what people could give monetarily to that church. And I said, man, well, let me kind of tell you what we do. So I kind of described our process and the controls that we have and how I can't touch the money and all of that. He was like, wow, man, if I had a church, I would do it that way. And I'm like, I'm not looking for his affirmation or looking for him to go, you're doing it the right way. I'm just trying to help him understand that what you've seen is not the way that it should be. And so there are people in these pastors' lives that were abusing the money that knew it and they didn't say anything. And now I'm riding with an Uber driver who's driving cars rather than pastoring people because of hypocrites. Because of hypocrites. So it impacts everything. It doesn't just impact that person. It doesn't just impact you. It impacts others around. So what's our response? How do we prayerfully respond to hypocritical people. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 with me. Samuel, uh, the book of Samuel is kind of toward the beginning of, uh, of the Bible. And we're going to have it up on the screen. If you need a Bible, man, we have one at our Connect Tent. Uh, or you can download the Bible app, whatever is the easiest for you. But uh, we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel. And here's kind of the story. Let me set it up for you. At this time, you got this guy named David. David is king of Israel. He's the second king of the nation. Uh, David's a, a pretty good guy, uh, at least compared to the last king. Um, but we shouldn't always compare people to people. So uh, David, he, uh, the, the Bible tells us at the beginning of the story that 
he's, uh, it's springtime, which is the time where the armies would go out to fight other armies. And kings during that time were expected to be with their armies. They were not expected to stay back. Well, David stays back in his palace. And one evening, David goes out onto the balcony. Well, he also knows that at evening time is when the women would go take baths on, on their roofs. And so David's palace is overlooking the town. He goes out onto the balcony, knowing this is the same time that women are bathing in spots that he can see. He looks out, he sees this woman. He's like, oh man, she's, she's, she's pretty good. Uh, and so he gets his little minions to go get her. They bring her back to his house and he does things with her. And she gets pregnant. There's a lot of issues with this, this story. First of all, David's already married. Now, why would he want more wives? I don't know, Okay. <laughs> Last service, I said, man, I can't even handle the one I have. And I didn't mean that, babe. I didn't mean that. I see you back there. But I don't know why guys would want more than one wife. He's got a lot of wives and he's got a lot of extra women as well. So he's already going against God's plan for his life. But he sees this one woman. He's like, hey, not only that, she's married. And her husband is one of David's inner circle guys. One of his mighty men is what they're called. So David knows this guy really well. He knows his wife really well. And yet he takes her, he takes his power and abuses her. It's called rape. And then she becomes pregnant. So he goes, okay, I got to figure this thing out. So he brings Uriah, the husband, home from the war. Uriah's fighting the war for David while he's taking advantage of his wife. Brings him home. Uriah's like, I'm not sleeping with my wife because my men are out in the field. And so he actually sleeps outside the house, which ruins David's plan. Because David's thinking if Uriah will sleep with his wife, then she'll get pregnant. Everybody will think she got pregnant from him. Problem is solved. But Uriah won't sleep with his wife. So David has a problem. He sends Uriah back to the front lines, gets him killed on purpose, brings Bathsheba into his household to become another one of his wives. But this is the king. And the king can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And who's going to say anything? Who's going to say something against the king? You'll get your head cut off. This isn't like today where you can say whatever you want on social media and there's no repercussions. Like no one's coming after you or whatever. Like this is a time where if you said something, it got back to that person and David could kill you for any reason. So who in their right mind is going to confront David? And yet God sees David. He goes, man, this is a guy who says he loves me, who says he follows me and he's not living that way. I need someone to confront him. Who will do it? And pops this guy named Nathan. Nathan's a friend of David. He's also a prophet. A prophet is someone who hears a word from God to a specific group of people or to an individual. So he actually hears this word from God about David, and he has to decide what's he going to do. Now, in this story, there's two people, Nathan and David, and we find our story in both of their stories. First, look, let's look at Nathan. How does Nathan confront David in a prayerful way? Well, he does three things. These are three things that if, you, if God's calling you to confront somebody in your life, these are three prayerful ways that you can confront them. Number one, be available. Be available. I love 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Stop right there. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan could have said, hey, God, I'm kind of busy right now. Like, I'm good, man. I don't need any more drama in my life. I'm not looking to get my head cut off. Like, there's no way Nathan woke up one morning and was like, you know what? Like, what's the best way to die today? I think I'll go confront the king. That sounds like a great plan. Sounds good. My body will probably be strung up. I'll be hung, whatever. Like, this is a great plan. No, Nathan doesn't say that. 
There's no way Nathan's like, I can't wait to confront the king. I can't wait to possibly die. I can't wait. But God says, hey, Nathan, are you available? And Nathan has this posture of, hey, God, use me. Hey, God, if you want to, use me. And I wonder if we have that posture, if I have that posture. You know, for some of us, when it comes to confrontation, when it comes to, to, to how do we respond and love critical, I mean, hypocritical people, some of us are like, man, I'm not touching that. Like, there's enough drama in my life. There's enough drama in the world. I, somebody else can deal with that. Somebody else, can, I'll pray for them. Maybe they'll come to church and then Ernest can do it. But somebody else is, I'm not touching that one. And then others of us, we go, you know what? I see some issues in this world and I want to be a part of change. And we, we focus on the systemic change. We focus on this bigger change, which is awesome. It's awesome to go, man, how do we change the systems that we live in so that they're, it's a, a little bit more equal for everybody, so that people feel loved and cared for? And, and how do we change the system? That's great, but the only way to change the system is to change the people of the system. The only way to change this bigger thing out there is to go, how do we change the lives of individuals? How do we help individual people first? You see, Nathan cared more about David than he did himself. And when Nathan looked at David, he cared more about him and him being right with God and him doing what God has called him to do and him living the way that God called him and created him to live. He cared more about David than he did himself. Do we care more about others that we're willing to confront them? Like, do we love people so much then we look at them and we go, that's not God's best for their life. God, use me in their life. God, may, be, may I be a voice in their life so that they can experience your best and how, why you created them and, and, and your plan and your purpose for them. God, use me to help them. If we love people, if we love the people that God has placed in our life, then we'll say, I'm available. I don't want to just help create the systemic change. I want to help the change that impacts that individual. It starts there. Are we available? The second thing that Nathan did to confront David in a prayerful way is to speak truth with love. Speak truth with love. David, Nathan could have blasted David. He could have put it all over the place. He could have like, gotten a little piece of paper, written down a letter like, hey, these are all the things that David's done. He, he did this to a woman. He abused his power. And, and, and then he killed her husband. He could have wrote it all down and posted it all over the town. It's kind of like what we do with social media right now. So everybody else can see what's going on. He could have done that. He could have gone in and been like, David, you're an evil person. I can't believe you did that. But he didn't. He spoke truth with love. What do he do? He walks into the house. He says, hey, David, I, I got a story to tell you. David's like, all right, cool. I, I like a good story. He says, there's two guys in a town. One's a rich guy. He's got everything. He's got all the sheep. He's got all the cattle. Man, he's got everything he could ever want. Then you've got a poor guy. And the poor guy literally has nothing but one little lamb. David's like, okay, I'm tracking with you. There's a traveler that comes into the, into the town, and the rich guy wants to impress the traveler, so he wants to feed him. And so he doesn't take from his own cattle and his own sheep. What's he do? He takes the, the poor guy's one little lamb and kills it and feeds it to the traveler. And David's like, what? He erupts in fury. Are you telling me that someone has abused their power? Are you telling me that a rich person took from a poor, poor person? Are you kidding? Who? Who's the guy? Tell me where they're at. Nathan says this, verse 7. Nathan said to David, 
You are the man. It's you, David. You get so angry. You're righteous. Why is he getting angry? Because he knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows what God has called people to do and how God's called people to act. And so when he sees somebody taking advantage of another person, oh my, tell me where that guy is because I'm going to take care of it now. Nathan says, the problem is it's you, man. You're the guy. You're the one that abused your power. You're the one that took advantage of a woman. You're the one that killed her husband. You're the rich man taking from the poor. It's you. Now, in that moment, Nathan's probably thinking, man, I'm going to die. This isn't good. But he still chooses to speak truth and love. So if God calls you to, to speak truth and love, if God calls you to confront someone, how do you do it? Let me give you kind of four steps, four ways to confront people in love. Number one, speak face-to-face. Speak face-to-face. Don't do it through text. Don't call them unless they live out of state, and that's the best way you can do it. Then do it through Zoom or through FaceTime or whatever so you can at least see their face. Don't do, don't, don't do it through Facebook or social media or whatever. I remember a few years back, my, uh, we went back to uh, the, the church that, that I worked at, and we got saved at and all that stuff. We went back there, and I, went, I was speaking, and I was kind of talking about, like, some of the differences. I was kind of giving them an update about what's going on here, and I was like, you know, there's some things that we miss. Uh, we miss from here. I said, my wife really misses the humidity which I know is sickening, like something's wrong about that. And I said, but, you know, that's like, that's like her way. Like when she, when she can, like, get some humidity, she feels like she's in heaven. And I'm like, sorry, babe, to tell you, that's not heaven. That's what hell will feel like. So got to change. But, like, that's just, she loves the humidity. So I'm telling the people this, and, and I say, you know, so one of the ways that she gets humidity is she likes to do hot yoga, which, again, sounds miserable to me. I, like, want to pass out when I go in a place like that. She loves it. And so I'm telling them this. Now, I don't tell them, like, this yoga place also plays Christian music. And, yada, and I don't tell them any of that. I'm just trying to tell a little joke to get people on my side. So I tell them that. And then a couple hours later, I get this Facebook message from a lady that I've known for a really long time. I can't believe you, Pastor. Your wife. She's sinning. She's with Satan if she's doing yoga because that's straight from Satan. And I'm like, first of all, if you're going to confront somebody, make sure you have your facts straight and you understand scripture versus your opinions. Second of all, don't do it on Facebook. Like, that's the way that you're going to do this is on Facebook? Like, call me. Let's have, I've known you since I was like five. Like, let's have a conversation here. But no, that's how we do it nowadays. We want to confront people in a way that, it, that you, you have no recourse if I confront you. But the best way to confront is face-to-face. Why? Because you can see the person's face. You can see their body language. You, your, your face and your body will tell them, I love you. This is why we're having this conversation. Because I care this much about you. This isn't easy for me. When you do that face-to-face, it speaks a lot more than just the words that you're saying. Another way to, to, to take steps to lovingly speak truth into people's lives is only involve necessary people. Only involve the necessary people. Not, hey, hey, community group, I, I mean, I got to confront Johnny this week about this thing that's happening. I need you guys to pray for it. Nobody needs to know that. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, if you don't know how to confront somebody, read Matthew chapter 18. It just gives you, hey, if somebody does something, do this. And if that doesn't work, do this. And if that doesn't work, do this. And if that doesn't work, do this. 
It tells you exactly, and there's nowhere in Matthew chapter 18 that's like, hey, tell the world too. Like, let your friends know, let your family know. No, don't involve anybody else. Just involve the necessary people in that situation. Because if your ultimate aim is to help that person change, then involving a whole lot more people is going to make that ultimate aim very difficult. Very difficult. So speak face-to-face. Only involve necessary people. Number three, be curious. What is be curious? It means ask questions. Like, hey, David, help me understand. Why, why aren't you at war with your, your fellow comrades? Like, why, why aren't you out at battle right now? David, you know that, that around this time is when the women go out and they bathe themselves on the rooftop and, and your balcony overlooks their roofs. Why would you go out there at that time? Like, what else is going on, David? Are you having some relational issues? Like, spiritually, where are you at? You know, like, help me understand what's going on. When you're curious, you ask questions rather than make assumptions. And I don't know about you, but most of the time, my assumptions about people are way off, and they're always negative. It's never like, you know what, this person, they're probably just really struggling in their faith right now. And, you know, I mean, hurting people hurt people, so I'm going to give them grace. I don't think that. I go, man, they meant to do this. I can't believe they're doing this. So be curious, ask questions. And then lastly, seek, seek to restore rather than ruin. There's a lot of people right now trying to ruin other people. May we be a group of people that seeks to restore people rather than ruin people. So what did David do? He, or what did Nathan do? He was available. He spoke truth and love. And then lastly, uh, he let God handle the rest. He let God handle the rest. What does that mean? It means that we don't fix people. Christ does. None of us can change anybody. I've had to learn this in marriage. It's been a really hard lesson. So men, let me tell you this. Let me, let me give you some, some free advice right now. Okay. You don't need to go to marriage counseling for this. Uh, you don't need to pay to go on a marriage retreat for this. Ready, men? I'm gonna give you something really, really important. You are not a good Holy Spirit to your wife. You're not. And wives, you're not a good Holy Spirit to your husband. So many times we see something, right? Especially with the people that are closest to us. We see what can change in their lives. And so we want to address it. I'm not saying don't address it, but I'm saying you can't create the change. So you badgering over and over and over and over, thinking that that's going to create the change that you want, probably not. It's going to drive them away. So at some point you confront, you do it with love, but then you go, okay, God, now they're yours. You do what you want in their life. You move in their life. You do whatever you need to do, Holy Spirit, to create the change. And I will love them and I will pray for them. And if you call me to confront them again, I'll confront them again. But I need you to do what only you can do. So that's Nathan's story. What about David? I said there's two people in this story and we we can see our story and their story. We can see, okay, what do we do if we have people in our lives that are hypocrites? How do we confront them in a loving, godly way? So we got Nathan's, but what about David? What about when you and I are the Davids? What about when you and I are living a life that is not pleasing to God, is not honoring to him? I mean, even Paul writes that that the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do them. There's like this inner struggle as a follower of Christ. And so what happens when we find ourselves in a place where we just kind of feel stuck and honestly, we're okay with it? You see, it's not bad if you're, the, the sin part isn't the issue. It's the reluctance to receive grace and to change that's the issue. We all sin. 
God goes, I, I know that, and I love you, and I'm giving you grace, you got to change. And so how do we respond to confrontation in a godly way? What did David do? Well, number one, we got to confess and repent. Confess means to agree with God what he already says. So God, you've, you've already said this is sin. Or you've already said you don't want this in my life. So I'm agreeing with you on that and I'm gonna repent. What does a repent mean? It means if you're walking this direction, you turn 180, you go, I'm no longer doing that anymore. It doesn't mean you won't slip back into it. it doesn't mean you still won't sin from time to time, but your, your heart, it's a different posture. It's instead of, yes, yeah, I'm fine with this. I'm cool with this. It's like, I'm no longer cool with this. I no longer wanna live this way. I might slip back up. I might make mistakes because I'm going to sin. I'm a human. But man, my heart is different now. I'm walking a different way. I love Psalm 51. If you get time, read it some point this week. Psalm 51, super short. But David wrote this psalm right after Nathan confronted him. Like right after. Here's what he said. Have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. What's he doing? He's confessing. God, I'm sorry. And this is where my heart was. This is where I've been. Please forgive me. And I love verse 10. He says, Create in me a pure heart. This is the repentance, this is the turning. I don't want this anymore. Create in me a pure heart. Oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. How did David respond? He confessed and repented. That's not the natural way to respond. The natural human way to respond is by defense. A couple weeks ago, my wife confronted me on, I mean, I, I have... I have some serious issues when it comes to driving. I know some of you are all like, oh, that's your sin? Yes, it is. That's one of my many. I'm a terrible, like really bad. I'm a good driver, but I'm aggressive. I'm, I'm too competitive. There's all kinds, of, I've got a lot of issues. So my wife said, hey, Ernest, will you please stop this? And my first reaction was, I'm not doing anything. And then she said, this brings anxiety to me. And I'm like, I've read boundaries. That's on you. I can't bring anything to you. It's not what the book of boundaries says, but that's the way I interpret it in that moment. And I shouldn't have said that out loud. What was my first response? It was defense. Like, that's not me. That, that's on you. And it took a little bit, but eventually I had to confess and I'm still in the process of repenting trying to change but I realize that it hurts my wife in such a way man I gotta make changes like I can't keep doing this and I needed her to call me out but when we get called out do we react in defense or do we confess and repent and the next thing that David did and I love this I love this you maintain community you may, probably the greatest part of David's story is this part right here because at the end of David's life, David had a lot of wives. He had a lot of kids. He had a lot of concubines. He had a lot of people that wanted his attention and all that. At the end of his life, he had four people around his deathbed. Four. And one of them was Nathan. The guy who confronted him. The guy who risked his life 
because he cared more about David than he did himself, was standing there at the end of the day. I think so many times in this world when we're confronted with somebody, especially, especially over the last year or so, it's so much easier to push that person aside. To go, well, you, you actually don't care about me or whatever it is. It's way easier to push somebody that confronts us away from us. But God shows us that when you have people in your life who care that much about you, to be that brave and that bold to say, hey, here's God's best for you, they love you so much. And those could be people that were, are there at the very end. And so what about you? As you look at people in your life, as you are walking through certain things right now, I talked to a few people after last service, and man, like honestly, this message was not one that I was wanting to talk about. It's, it's hard talking about hypocrites. Because not only do we have them in our lives, but I am that at times. And so if you have those people in your life, are you available? Are you saying, hey, God, use me? I mean, it's not going to be fun. No one likes confronting people. It's not going to be easy, but use me. Help me speak the truth in love. And then, God, I'm going to give that person over to you and say, have your way with them. Change them. Do whatever you need. And then be very careful because we can be the, the hypocrites. We can be those who say, and I love God. I want God's best. But then when we look at our lives, we go, man, I... I've got some, I not only have sin in my life, because we all have that, but I have sin in my life I'm not willing to get rid of. If that's you, I would just say, man, process that. And say, God, maybe I want to get rid of, but I don't even know how. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to get rid of this. Change my heart. Move in me. And I believe firmly that if you and I, if we're willing to confront in love and we're willing to be confronted if we confront others because we love them and we're willing to be confronted because we love Jesus, we'll see changes not only in our own lives, but in the community around us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I thank you, God, for this word. God, I, I, man, what a, what a powerful story of redemption. God, even at the end of David's life, he is, we are told that he was a man seeking after your own heart. That the only one in the Bible that that's told about is told about a guy that, that abused his power over a woman, that he killed another guy, that, that God, he did so many things that were outside of your will, and yet when he was confronted, he confessed and repented. What a beautiful story of redemption. A beautiful story, God, that you forgive us if we confess and repent. So first, God, I pray, I know there are some of us in here that we're thinking about individuals in our lives that, God, we feel this nudge to confront. And I pray, God, that you would make us available, that, God, you would give us this, this opportunity to speak truth with love, and that, God, then we would just go, hey, have your will in their lives. Use me how you want, but have your will in their lives. May we be bold enough because we love enough. And then, God, we know this whole conversation really starts with our relationship with you. And God, there were and eight people last service that were bold enough to say, you know what, I came into this place, and if I'm being real honest, man, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to be real honest, earnest. I, I've been living a, a life of hypocrisy. 
or I haven't been living a life of hypocrisy because I don't even know who Christ is. I've never even given my life to him. And if that's you, I just want you to know that our God is so big, so great, so gracious that he's saying right now, just come home. That he loves you so much that it doesn't matter about your past, what you did last night, that all of that, he says, I love you, I see it, I saw it, here's how this is going to impact you, but come home, because I want to forgive. What does that mean to come home? It means to recognize that we all have sin, that every one of us does, and that sin separates us from God, and God loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us. And some of us, man, we've accepted that truth a long time ago, but man, we have not been living that in our lives. And others of us, we've never accepted that truth. We've never received what Christ did on the cross for us. So if that's you, with every head bowed and eyes closed, if you'd say, you know what, Ernest, man, I, I want to come home today. I want to recognize that my sin has separated me from God, but I want to choose God's love. I want to come into his embrace today. If that's you, I just want you to raise a hand. I want to know who I'm praying for. Amen. 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 Father, thank you. Thank you for these individuals, God. Thank you for your love for them. Thank you that you've drew them to this place. For those of you watching online, if that's the decision you want to make, you can text the word follow to the number on the screen. I just want you to know, if you raise your hand, if you're texting that word right now, I want you to know God sees you and he loves you. He loves you. There is no sin too great for his love. And he says, welcome home. And for all of us, God, I pray you would tell us what our next step is with this conversation. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.